In the first half of 2020 alone, more than a thousand laws and orders were issued by federal, state, and local authorities in the United States in an effort to reduce transmission of COVID-19. But there have been limited efforts by research funders and the research community to evaluate the benefits and the harms of various legal restrictions. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Scott Burris, Director of the Center for Public Health Law Research at the Temple University Beasley School of Law. Professor Burris has co-authored a perspective article about studying the health effects of laws and legal practices. Professor Burris, in your perspective article, you use the term legal epidemiology. Can you explain what that concept entails? Well, that's defined as the scientific study of the health effects of laws and legal practices. Years ago, we used to call it public health law research, and we had a program from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to fund and spread the practice of doing that kind of evaluation. People at the CDC started to call it legal epidemiology, and frankly, some epidemiologists object. It's catchy, and it captures the idea that law is an epidemiological force. It shapes behavior. It shapes environment. And of course, it's also a very prominent tool of intervention in public health. So what kinds of questions could be answered by rigorous studies on the legal approaches that have been used to control COVID-19? Well, COVID-19 is a wonderful case in point. Think about it this way. We had basically the same repertoire of responses applied in differing settings all around the world with often quite different results. One of the commonalities that seems to emerge out of this is that it's not enough just to issue a rule so it is written, so it shall be done. But to understand that in any given country, in any given state in our country with such diversity, political factors, cultural factors, strengths and prevalence of religious beliefs and typical religious practices, all these things are gonna influence how the same rule plays out and whether it has a broad effect or a minimal effect, whether it creates a lot of resistance or a little resistance. So when we look at the problem of disease control for the future, There's a bunch of basic things we'd like to understand. We'd like to understand how general feelings about government influence compliance. We'd like to understand how much deterrence has an impact, in other words, the threat of punishment, how much of it has to do with people's trust in government or with their sense of legitimacy of government. In other words, we have this treatment that we want to use. We want to get people to do stuff by telling them to wear a mask or telling them to stay home. But we don't have much sophistication or much of an evidence base to understand, well, how do we actually use that lever most effectively? So, in fact, why do you think that research on the effects of public health laws and COVID-19 in particular hasn't been a priority? Lack of attention to the health effects of law is not something new. It's really been the rule rather than the exception. So in the past, over the last 50 years of public health, there have been certain areas where a serious attempt was made to do good science investigating the effects of laws. Probably maybe the most prominent was in traffic safety, where seatbelt laws and airbag laws and drunk driving laws and drinking ages, things like this were studied intensively with strong NIH funding over a long period of years. And we got really fantastic results that guided policy and helped us drastically reduce the toll of various kinds of misbehavior on the roads. Tobacco control has been another area, and I keep pointing to NIH because they're so big when it comes to research funding. They're really the only entity that can fund careers and trajectories of work. NIH was interested in smoke-free indoor air laws and advertising restrictions and so on, and it funded 
long-term research trajectories in this area. So again, we learned what worked. But most of the time, I think for largely cultural reasons, people who work in health and do health work and do the health funding just kind of think of law as this sort of either something that somebody else should deal with, or it's kind of yucky, or it's just sort of too arcane ever to be understood from a scientific perspective. But those cultural beliefs are wrong, as they say, as NIH itself has demonstrated in selected areas. So looking at potential methodology, you say in your article that the randomized control trial has never been the usual or the best approach for studying the effects of laws. What types of research methods are better suited to legal epidemiology? Well, if we go back and say, take the case of road safety and all those alcohol control laws related to road safety, the standard design was a large-scale quasi-experimental study that looked at a number of states, if not all the states, over an extended period of time, five to 10 years, and captured all the often rather substantial variation in the same kind of law. So some laws will have different levels of penalties, or they'll cover different people or different age groups. And those differences allow you, through a natural experiment, to get a similar kind of factual and counterfactual comparisons to make and support pretty good causal inference about how these laws work. So even with the limited funding and the attention to the issue that you're describing, are there in fact research teams that have been focusing on the effects of COVID-19 laws? Well, what we had was an interesting natural experiment in modeling. So during the first year of COVID-19, there were a lot of teams that jumped into trying to predict what effect law would have. And I would say by and large, that work has shown how difficult it is to predict the future. The question now is whether we're going to have teams going back and with actual COVID outcome data and other kinds of data about movement and stuff that we can get from Google and such, we'll be trying to trace the effects of laws across different jurisdictions and over different times. I'm not aware of any of that research coming out yet or being done yet. It's too early. I hope it's going to happen. That's one reason we wrote this perspective, to encourage people to see how important that kind of research would be and to encourage more explicit funding for it. And in fact, in the article itself, you suggest that now is an appropriate time to invest in research and the research infrastructure to study the effect of laws. So who should be responsible for this research? What should the funding infrastructure look like? Is it all NIH, as you suggest, or are there other opportunities? Well, I suppose we focus on NIH in particular because of its size, but also for another reason. Throughout the effort to support and further develop this field of legal epidemiology, we have insisted upon it as being continuous with other kinds of health research. So a law is like an educational intervention, for example. So it's completely consistent with studies of educational interventions. Law can do environmental change. It can be thought of as a structural intervention. It can be studied like other kinds of social interventions. Law is a set of institutions and people in the same way that church is a set of institutions and people, or government is a set of institutions and people, or a hospital is a set of institutions and people. Their behavior can be observed, the inputs can be measured, the outputs can be compared or assessed against that. So we push it in NIH because we think we should stop thinking of law as something else, as something different. It should be natural to include law. If you're studying opioids and drug overdose and the effect of many legal interventions we've launched against opioid overdose, that's something that ought to be funded by NIDA, which it does to some extent, but not enough. If we're thinking about civil commitment, whether it's to take people's guns away or for other purposes to stop gun violence, 
NIMH should be funding that. We actually don't, as far as I know, still have an accurate accounting of how often people are committed every year. So the research infrastructure is often not there for answering key questions about how big intervention systems are working. I think it's pretty clear that Anthony Fauci's Institute should now be thinking about funding research on the implementation and effectiveness of laws that are meant to control the spread of diseases like COVID. Thank you, Professor Burris.